You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport here. Listen, the Tony Awards were Sunday and odds are you didn't win one yet. But don't worry, there's still a chance for you to win one if you play my board game, Be a Broadway Star. Uh, you didn't know I had a board game? Well, I did. It's kind of like life and charades, but all about Broadway. Check out BeABroadwayStar.com. Learn all about it. It's a ton of fun. Again, BeABroadwayStar.com. And now, on to the podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport. This is the 24th episode of the podcast, believe it or not, already 24 down. Uh, And today I have quite a guest with me. First of all, I'm sitting in his apartment, which has a glorious view of the park. I I have you all over, but I think John would would look so good on uh, crowding his living room here. Um, But this man is responsible for helping to literally write the legal framework for the modern Broadway era. He has been called one of the most influential and powerful, and I've also heard one of the nicest attorneys in the biz. Welcome, John Breglio. (laughs) Hi, Ken. Nice to be here. Uh, In addition to working with producers and theater owners both on and off Broadway, John has also repped hundreds of individual artists in the business, including a few bold-faced names like, oh, I don't know, Stephen Sondheim. Andrew Lloyd Webber, August Wilson, Michael Bennett, Marvin Hamlish, and so on and so forth. I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine what a day in his office might be like? Uh, John, I have Andrew Lloyd Webber on one and Stephen Sondheim on two. One of my questions for him will be a little later. Which call would you take? Uh, We'll get to that. Um, 
In addition to his legal work, John is also quite a producer in his own right, stepping over to the dark side uh, for the first time as the producer of the very successful first revival of A Chorus Line in 2006. Along the way, he has been the chair of the of TDF, the Theater Development Fund, and also advised all sorts of important nonprofits like New York Shakespeare Festival, the Actors Fund, Manhattan Theater Club, Roundabout, and so on and so forth. John, <laughs> how did the, your mega career in theater law get started? Where did this all begin for you? Well, not to bore you with too much uh, biography, but I always loved the arts. I studied piano for about 10 years, thought I was going to go to Juilliard, did not, went to Yale, got involved in theater. And that's what I thought I would always do. I would be doing theater in some form, musical theater or straight plays. But I had no choice because it was Vietnam. And the Vietnam War intervened. Uh, most of my friends were either leaving the country or burning draft cards. It was a terrible period. By some stroke of luck, I got what was called a 1Y, which meant you would not get called up unless there was a national emergency. It was a new classification, so I found myself suddenly not drafted and able to pursue something else. So not knowing what else to do, which is what a lot of people did in the, in the late 60s, I went to law school. Went to law school, and to my surprise, I really loved it. And then the second year of my law school uh, career, I saw in the New York Times, second section, a huge piece on entertainment lawyers. And the lawyer they, they profiled was John Wharton, who was the dean of uh, lawyers, entertainment lawyers, uh, particularly in theater and film. And he was one of the founding partners of my law firm, Paul Weiss, Fifth and Wharton and Garrison. So I, this was a revelation to me. I had no idea this existed, entertainment lawyers. And it was very different. You got to keep in mind, 68, uh, no, this was now 70. It's not like today where entertainment lawyers are known generally. There weren't very many of them. And uh, so I pursued that. I went to Paul Weiss as a summer associate, and that was it. I decided, well, this is perfect. I can combine my what will be my avocational interests, presumably in the theater and the arts, with uh, a career where I can make some money. So that's what I did. I went to Paul Weiss, extraordinary place, where they had the dean of you know entertainment lawyers, John Wharton, others, Bob Montgomery, who was one of the most well-known film lawyers. And I learned the theater business, the film business, the book publishing business, the music business. I mean, we represented ASCAP, we represented Frank Lesser, Cole Porter. I mean, I got an education that was staggering for, for me, especially someone who loved the arts. And that's how I got my education. And so I stayed, as, as you probably know, I stayed there until 2006, uh, seven more or less, and, and that's when I decided to go into producing full-time. I, I no longer practice law, and I'm, I've been producing now for the past, uh, whatever, seven or eight years. Uh, but without that, those 36 years of education, uh, I could never do what I'm doing today. And all those years that I, I practiced, I, that's what I did. I, I mean, I represented producers. It's, it's no secret. I'm sure your listeners and other people you've had on have said that there are many, many people in this business who are producers who are total neophytes. They've never produced before. They've made a ton of money in other parts of the world in whatever they've done. And then they, with a lot of extra money, want to come in and produce on Broadway. And, and they often hire uh, entertainment lawyers to help them do it. So I was really doing producing, at least from the ground up, so much of the time. 
and then learning also working with people like Michael Bennett and you know and how Prince and these great writers like Stephen Sondheim and Joe Pappas an entrepreneur in the end, I had a first-hand glimpse of what it was really like to be in the trenches and and they would come to me with their problems which were business legal but then I had an inside view of what it was like to be what they are they were and so I was always um, itching to do it myself and that's when I finally did do it that's a long-winded answer I don't know so, <laughs> if I talk too much but no that's, not that's at my all. background sort of in a nutshell so do you remember your first when you started as a summer associate what you or uh, as an associate there what your first project was oh yeah are you kidding it's a it's, it's a great one I sat down at my desk and uh, summer associate and I got uh, a call from one of the partners and said come down we're going to work on a new show and he said have you ever heard of Gone with the Wind and I burst out laughing I said yes I said what are you talking about he said he's going to do a musical based on Gone with the Wind so for me I mean you got to understand this is this young kid 20 something odd years old you know besotted with the, you know theater and everything else have sat through law school for three years and now suddenly my first time is going to work on the con with the wind of musical <laughs> so i was absolutely beside myself we were representing we were going to represent stevens mitchell who was margaret mitchell's i think it was her cousin anyway he was quite elderly and um we since we represented basic rights the first thing was do we want to have a show a, a stage musical based on this this incredible book and um, the next thing I knew I was on a plane with the, the partner flying down to Atlanta going down to this plantation type uh, country club in Atlanta and there was Stephen Mitchell all dressed in a white suit you know Panama hat it was it's really right out of the book and we talked about doing a musical the pros and cons of what it would be like and what, what controls you could have whatever you know that kind of thing and I, I was there representing with the partner, of course. I was just an assistant representing Gone with the Wind. And we were off and running. And, and I was the lawyer. And I was given enormous responsibility. I was this green, not knowing anything lawyer. But Paul Weiss was that kind of place. They really threw you into the, into the pit. And it was a great, great experience. And just flashing forward to towards the end of your career as a practicing attorney right do you think deals it has become harder to make deals today longer to make deals to get them done i love this story about everyone including the writers in the room trying to figure all this out which doesn't happen today yeah. today we have phone calls that don't get returned for probably three or four weeks sometimes you know it's a very good question because i have a span of you know 40 years well the one big change that has speeded things up, which is huge, is word processing. When I started practicing law, the only techno technological thing you had was a Xerox, we called a Xerox machine, a photocopier. There was nothing, there were, there were no computers, there were, there were, there was no, secretaries worked on typewriters with carbon copy. So if you had a 50-page agreement or even a 30 or 20 or 10-page agreement, every change had to be made by hand and had to be either raced with what they called whiteout. I don't know if you even know what whiteout is. And then all the pages had to be changed. 
it took forever to do a contract today obviously you know you take your laptop you the lawyers in in at paul weiss now don't even need secretary because they they draft all their contracts themselves and it's all done by computer so it's they draft a contract but i mean they don't type it themselves so in terms of speed of just getting the work out the paperwork out there's no comparison to the old days but the other side of the coin is just pure negotiating the, the 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 process of talking to people negotiating the deal i think that has slowed down and it's better now but it wasn't hasn't been um great for for several years is the complexity of royalty pools and amortization and the um ignorance on behalf of so many people and i i don't use ignorance in a pejorative sense just not knowing what these things are and general managers and producers who are smart about it be manipulating all the numbers and making the numbers for their benefit and then showing these formulae and other things to agents and others who are mystified by it they don't understand it they need to use their lawyers and other people to figure it out so that has made the negotiation on financial terms much more complicated and time-consuming most of the negotiations tend to be over that because things such as credit and 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 per diem and the grant of rights all those things that are critical to getting the rights and doing deals with orchestrators and directors the basic terms haven't changed much in in 40 years they really haven't um and those are fairly straightforward what what is m mostly consuming today are the financial terms and as i said in the old days it was are you going to give somebody a five thousand dollar advance or six thousand or seven thousand and you're going to give them two percent of the gross or three percent of the gross that doesn't take a long time to negotiate today you know it could take weeks weeks to for people to not only understand it but to figure out what they're going to settle for so the the, the financial rigmarole and the financial permutations today are so much more complicated than before and that has led i think to a lot of delay and and getting deals done what I find so fascinating about your career and who you've represented is you talk about representing the producers on a major Broadway musical. Uh, and then, of course, you've represented some of the greatest artists that the Broadway community has ever birthed. Uh, you've repped both sides of it. Do you think that has helped you gain a greater understanding, obviously, of both sets of shoes and allow you to negotiate better? Because agents who represent artists only pitch one way. But you've pitched both sides. Yeah. I, I think it's been a great advantage to me because I am sympathetic to both sides. I, I'm almost more sympathetic to the artist, I think, because my wife's a writer. And also, I mean, you know, it's the it's the craft, it's the art from the writer's side. And, and so many writers are so dependent on a lawyer uh, or, or an agent for knowledge. You know, a producer, if he knows anything, should be a little more sophisticated about uh, what it means to pay operating profits as opposed to gross. But, you know, for, for writers who spend most of their time worrying about what's on the page, it, they don't even want to spend a lot of time worrying about that. So I think it's been, for me, a, a, a great benefit, but a, a joy to be able to be looking at that way because it helps in any negotiation. So you, in a way, you can predict what you're going to get coming back. I mean, there's no point if you're representing the producer 
to go forward with a proposal, which you know before you even submit it, the other side, if they have any kind of decent representation, the writers are going to come back and say, no, I can't do this, I can't do that. So you at least should start with something that you think is doable. The biggest problem for me is when I'm, I'm working on a deal where you have people on the other side, for example, West Coast people, who have no idea about the theater, whether it's the studios, for example, First it was Disney, and then it was Warner, and then Paramount, and they started getting involved. And again, because I had that expertise, and I had film background too, I'd done a lot of film work, I, I represented most of them. And you can't imagine how complicated that was, because they had no idea of the culture of theater deals, where the writer owns the copyright. Well, in Hollywood, are you kidding? A writer owns nothing, right? So for them... To think that they were going to do shows where the director owned the chore uh, direction, choreographer owned the choreography, the book writer owned the book, and they they just until this day, by the way, they still can't believe the way we operate in the theater. So working with people who don't have any idea of really what they're doing on another side is the ultimate. Um, well, it's it, it's a roadblock, and many deals are never made. So. Yes, for me to have understood both sides, and particularly when I was representing studios, which is like a third side, because they, they as far as they, they knew, they were going to come in and own everything, including Disney, and Disney was stunned when they started it. <laughs> this is not going to work for us, Beauty and the Beast. You know. Do you think, I often uh, theorize about whether someone coming in, and you're a great person to ask this, so you represent some authors, let's say, and they're... They've written some stuff, but they never had massive hits in any way, and you're representing them, and a producer calls you and says, look, I want to option this piece, but we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to do it like the Hollywood model. I'm going to own it. I'm going to write them a big, fat check to start with, and so they can they can write it and be very comfortable, but I'm going to own it from right. here on right. out. Would you entertain a deal like that? Well, I would always pass it on to my client, because I think it's your obligation as a lawyer to always tell your client what the other side has offered. Because that would be, I think it's unethical not to do it. It's just like the prosecutor, you know, proposing a plea deal and not telling your, your client who's indicted what they could plead. Um, would you recommend but, it? But what I would do, I would sit down with the other side before I even went to my client and say to him, look, I'll do this. I'll, I'll tell my client this. But I've represented, I don't know, I can't even count how many people I've represented in my career. It's not going to happen. They won't accept it. Now, if he was making this proposal to some, I don't know, no, someone who's never written anything and had no credits and was just a first-timer, I suppose they might take it. But in my career, it's never happened. Nobody has been willing to really take that kind of deal. They fight it uh, because the peer pressure is enormous. Mm -hmm. Other writers uh who are older or more experienced, the dramatist guild comes down on them, even if it's not a dramatist guild. Their, their, their mentors say, you can't give away this. This is the birthright of being a dramatist. This is, you've got to own your material. And I would sit down with them and, and say, look, if the thing that is produced ultimately is no good, well, okay, you will have gotten money up front and whatever and lost this. But the, the show is really good. I said, you'll never make more money this way. You'll make so much more money down the road and you'll own that copyright for the rest of your life and your kids will benefit by it. Why are you giving away this birthright for, and, and it's 
it's difficult to tell people this if they really need the money. But I've never seen anybody really give away that much up front. They may offer $100,000 or so, $125,000. There was a studio at once who offered someone a, a, a million dollars. I remember that. And it was a, a very established person. And that was accepted. But even in that deal, they held back certain rights. But um, it, it almost never happens. They, don't, they won't do it. And, and ultimately, you know, the studio finds out that they're banging their head against more than one wall. They got the directors to deal with, they got the choreographers to deal with, they got the orchestra to deal with, uh, the scenic designers. They all own their copyrights. And when they realize that that's the world they live in, they deal with it. Now, you've obviously negotiated some pretty big deals over your career. Any stand out? Any stand out as being unique or different or something that you remember as being a watershed moment? And... Well, I have to go back to Chorus Line when Michael Bennett for the first time did a workshop and decided to use actors to help create a piece. They became part of the authors of a piece and how was the industry going to deal with that? And over a period of two years that evolved and it changed the course of musical theater and nothing has come close to that from a pure sense of artistic creation as well as um, business deals that had to had to uh, reflect what was going on creatively so being more specific you know I think most people know a chorus line started with a bunch of dancers getting into a room and Michael turning on a tape recorder and recording these interviews, just sitting around and just talking about their lives. And based on those interviews, Michael, after the interviews, decided that it might be a musical. And out of that came his hiring Marvin Hamlish, Ed Kleban for lyrics, Nicholas Dante, who was one of the dancers to write the book, and then eventually Jimmy Kirkwood. And they slowly developed this show from nothing and it it, it just like a, a, a seed in the ground organically this thing just built and built and built over a year and a half based on uh, two workshops remember back in 1975 there was no such word as workshop in the theater I mean you know view of you know a bunch of elves sitting around tapping on tables I, what the hell is a workshop is Michael create with Joe Papp he said to Joe, I need a, to experiment because I don't know what I have. So they got in this room and they just kept working and working and working. And then he brought in Robin Wagner for sets and Theron Musser for lighting and Theoni Aldridge for costume. And they started thinking about what this should be. And Michael finally figured out, okay, we're in a rehearsal, we're in an audition room, bare stage, whatever. And they're going to tell their lives and we're going to create a musical out of that. So that took money and time. Um, $100,000 in 1975 is like a million and a half dollars today that Joe Papp did not have. Joe believed in Michael. And out, out of that came this workshop process. And suddenly everybody, because of the hit of Chorus Line was, everyone knew that it took months and months and almost two years to develop. So when Michael's next show came about which was ballroom we needed to come up 
with contracts now that reflected all this because we had no contracts before except we had a piece of paper that Michael had all the dances signed that said he owned everything for one dollar. In retrospect, Michael then, when Chorus Line was a big success, gave them a piece of his royalties and his subsidiaries. But now we had to codify that because Actors Equity said to us, we're not going to let you do another show like Chorus Line using all these actors and dancers and paying them a you know, $100 a week uh, unless we have a deal. So literally, they, they pulled all the actors from the, 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 the uh, Thursday before we were going to start rehearsals. And Alan Grody, who's the uh, uh, lawyer down there, uh, executive director for equity, called me up and said, we're not going to let anybody down. We've got to have this put in writing. So I told Michael, and he said, well, just figure it out. I went over to see Bernie Jacobs, who was you know, the head of the Schubert's, and the single most powerful man in the theater. And Bernie Jacobs, Alan Grody, and I, uh, literally for 24 hours around the clock, we never left the room, drafted the first workshop agreement. It gave the producer the right and the director to use actors for a reduced fee in a rehearsal room, use all their ideas, own all their ideas, but gave them a specific piece of the gross and a specific piece of the subsidiary rights. So that the reason I say that was so revolutionary is that not only did that now become the template, which, by the way, is still used, the same document that we did in 1975 in, in no, no, that was 77, in Bernie Jacobs' office. It's the same thing that's used today for workshops. Everybody then used workshops. And it did more than just change the relationship between actors and everybody in the room and directors. It suddenly changed the way people raised financing. Because now when you did a workshop, people no longer were doing only what Michael did, which was to just see if he had a show. Michael never invited investors to these things. He would never let that happen. Now suddenly it was... And uh, producers will say, oh, well, now I'll do a presentation in workshop and I'll invite uh, all my uh, investors. They don't just have to read a script and listen to a tape. Now they can actually see the show. That, of course, caused a lot of problems. It still causes problems. So that, to me, I think was a sea change like nothing else we've ever had, uh, which today still affects artistically, creatively, marketing, everything. You should get a royalty for writing that agreement, if, if only. You're right. You know uh, what? Yeah, I never oh thought God. of that. A bunch of lawyers are just right now. I would have had to share it with Alan Brody and Bernie <laughs> Jacobs, though. Uh, speaking of Michael, obviously the, the world lost Michael way too early. Uh, if he were alive today, what do you think he would think of the current state of Broadway? Because you were very I close. Think, I him. think of that all the time, what Michael would have done today. You know, he's, he's been dead 28 years. Because he'd only be, today, if he were alive, he'd be 73, 74. I mean, that's not old. Yeah, I mean, how old is Hal Prince? Um, George Abbott, when he died, was 100, I think. I, You know, Michael, God knows what would he have done. Now, but you asked a different question. What would he think of what was going on today? But I may be giving Michael too much credit here because I'm, a, I'm totally biased. But I don't think what's going on today would be going on today in the same way. Because Michael, remember, everything Michael did pushed the, the, the business farther along. I mean, Chorus Line was, was earth-shattering, and so was Dreamgirls. And so I, I know that he would never have done 
I mean, he was going to do the Children's Crusade before he died. I mean, this was the way Michael thought. He thought in terms of just what nobody had ever done. So I think that the theater would be different today because of some of the advancements Michael would have made and some of the ideas he would have had. I don't want to overstate that, but I think that because there was a real fallow period there when, you know, between, well, not between, because of AIDS, which Michael died of, we were losing people like crazy. And so in came the, the British invasion right before Michael died. And that's that whole period where there was no invention by American, on American musicals. Invention meaning the kind of invention we had with Chorus Line and Dreamgirls or other shows. It became the British invention. Well, that wasn't really an invention. It was, a, it was like operetta. I mean, it, it, in many ways, if you look at it, again, I'm not trying to say this in a negative sense. It was sort of a step back because it was almost opera. You know, Phantom of the Opera, Ray Miz, and the second, they were sung through pieces. The big change besides that was that they were monumental physical productions, you know, where Michael Bennett created shows that were bare. They weren't cheap, but they looked very cheap. But here, these monumental shows came in. You know, how long did it take to redo the Winter Garden Theater for Cats? And then Chandeliers coming down and the Majestic and, and Miss Saigon having helic. It was a whole new focus on what appeared to be an appetite that the British created in the audience for big spectacles. That wasn't Michael's way of producing theater. So what he would have done in the middle of that I don't know. And what he's, I know what he thought of it. He, he thought, this, this is not what I do. I know that. I mean, it wasn't. So <clears throat> right before he died, of course, he dropped out of chess. And chess was going to be, again, a bare stage with a, you know, a circular uh, turntable that tilted. And the whole wall in the back were nothing but video monitors. And this is, we're talking about 1985. Nobody ever did anything like that before. So again, it would have been very bare, was unbelievably expensive, what do you want to do? So that was the way Michael created his his magic, and it was very different from, from the Brits. Um, and then after that, we, you know, what can I say? I mean, you know, we've had a lot of musicals that sort of comment on musicals, you know, laugh about musicals, uh, reflect on what musicals are, and, uh, but... You know, we now have, I think, a lot of very talented people. They've emerged after a generation that we lost who are in their own strides. You know, the Casey DeClaws of Susan Thurman. They're all, you know, great directors who are going to find their own ways. But I, I know Michael would not have changed if he was alive today. He would continue to want to do things that were, were not literal on stage physically. He believed in movement, choreography lighting and the basic material to run a show he never believed that hard scenery added anything other than unnecessary sort of uh, distractions and now you're producing as well in 2006 it was a, a chorus line obviously the michael bennett piece tell me about what that was like for you now being on that side of the table for sure obviously you've been doing lots of things with michael over the years but now this was you did you find yourself enjoying it at first? Was it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did the chorus line again all over the world. I did Dreamgirls here, I did that all over the world. I was involved with Lisa Strati Jones. I've, I've been involved in several other shows. And what I learned was remarkable because 
I went in thinking that that I had a lot of knowledge of, and I'd watched other people, so many people. And the, the thing I realized more than anything before I started was that I had learned more from people who had not succeeded than the people who succeeded. It's very hard to actually duplicate success and watch someone say, God, why are they so successful? Because it's, it's sort of a, such so many intangibles. But when you see someone not succeed, you can usually identify what their issues are. And so it was helpful to see that because you want to stay away from what those people did uh, easily. And that was a big education for me, knowing how you made mistakes. But I had no idea until I started. I had no idea how much I still needed to learn. Because it is a big, big job. And it's not a big job if all you really think you have to do is write a check and sit back and have your general manager do it, which is, I suppose you could do, but then your general manager is basically producing it. But if you believe you have to be involved with the creative people, you have to be working with them, you have to be the one responsible for raising the money, you have to be a person who understands all the deals, and then not only do all that and then get to you know, auditions and get to rehearsals and, and get to previews, and then afterwards, the amount of work that's involved became a, a surprise to me of managing a hit, how you have to, it's a daily job if you do it right. And so it became for me uh, an all-consuming job because I really wanted to do as much as I could and learn all the things I never had done before. So I, I had a, still a big education to go through, but I loved it. I mean, I just loved it because I do think I had such a foundation to start with that I, it wasn't as if I was starting from day one, which is what's a box office. Well, it's an incredible testament to your character to be able, with someone as much experience as you have to be able to go, oh, I've still got a lot to learn. Yeah, so I, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough business if you really understand how much you need to know. I mean, that's why one of the reasons I wrote this book, I think I told you about, which I just finished, because I realized how, how complicated it is to really produce. I can't tell you how many people, I'm sure you've had this, at cocktail parties or wherever, friends you meet for the first time, they say, well, what, what does a producer do? Yeah, and everybody has a different view. You know, someone has a view that all you do is raise money, right? Other people think, well, <laughs> you know, you go to casting sessions. Is that what you do? You know, they think you're Max Bialystok. And, and then other people don't have any idea what a producer does. They just sort of think it all happens. And, you know, the writer writes it and director directs it. And what do you do? Um, and I, I, and I know there are so many people out there who, who, who will be great producers. And I thought this book, which really goes into great depth between the day you have the idea, literally the idea, that's all you have, yourself and the idea in the, in, in the shower, to opening night. And I wanted to show the full panoply of things, artistic business, marketing, you know, financial, legal, the whole thing that you, you really need to understand, at least to the extent I can you know, paint some kind of picture in this book, because it's, e it's not a simple task, as you well know. When's this book coming out? I, I can't be sure yet because I still have to start all the conversations with my editor and all that stuff that goes on. Um, I would guess sometime in 2016, 2016. You have a title yet? Working title is called um, Behind the Curtain, 
and I'll, if you want, I'll tell you a little reason why. Part of the reason is for the obvious. The obvious thing is behind the curtain what goes on uh, backstage and uh, how how she was put together. But uh, and this is a, 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 a cute little story. Uh, when I was very young boy, um, and I was sort of fascinated with the theater. And I'm talking seven or eight years old. I didn't know that much about theater. Was I was raised as a Catholic. And the church for me was an incredible theatrical event. I didn't realize it then, but that's what really attracted me to, to the mass. You had bells and whistles and, and you had smoke and you had lights and all this stuff. And I just loved the whole scene, right? I didn't realize that, that what I would loved was the theatricality of it. So <laughs> when at a very early age, my um, mother would talk about hearing uh, a little bell or something going on in the living room. and just like these curtains, which your listeners can't see, I would draw these curtains and stand behind the curtain, and I would act like I was in church. And it wasn't that I wanted to be a priest. It was for me. I was acting. And and, and she had no idea what, the, what was going on. <laughs> but I realized that that was my first sense of what drama could be like, or theatricality. So when I decided on the title, and I tell some of these stories in the beginning of my book, I decided behind the curtain made a lot of sense. So that means that the Pope is one of the greatest producers of live entertainment well, on the planet. You, have you ever seen anything more incredible than um, um, Christmas Eve mass? Uh, before I get to my final question, I have one penultimate question, which is Dreamgirls Broadway Revival. Yeah. What do we think? Going to happen? Well, you know, I did revive it in, until 2009. And I toured. I opened it at the Apollo theater here and I toured it all over the country. Right now we're focusing on London. It's going to be done in the West End 2016. Casey Nicola is going to direct. A totally new production. So that's the focus right now. So if that's, you know, with Casey Nicola who seems to be batting a thousand, we'll see what he does with it. If that's a big success over there, that's the one we'll bring here. If it's not successful, we'll see. Um, but we're waiting now. Uh, we're not going to do anything with Broadway until we see what we have in the West End. It's never been done in the West End. No, never? Never. Never. Never done. No one could figure out how to do it there. It was too expensive. So I don't know how, I'm working with Sonia Friedman, I don't know how it's going to get financed, how the budget's going to be. Because, you know, it's it's incredibly expensive show. I have a feeling a lot of my uh, listeners are on Expedia right now looking at flights to get over there and see what I'm sure will be a monumental production. Okay, last last question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes up to your apartment. So first of all, says, great view. Second of all, says, John, you've had an incredible career and you have stood up for these incredible artists uh, and helped create these incredible agreements like the workshop. You've done such great work on Broadway. I want to grant you a wish. What is the one thing, John, that drives you so crazy about Broadway, that keeps you up at night, that you still get angry even after all the success, that you would want this genie with the snap of a finger to change and make disappear? What's anything. Anything. Anything about it. it could, I've had everything from okay. sippy cups to, <laughs> to expensive theater tickets. What's yeah. that one burning thing that drives you nuts? The education of the audience. I would love to go back to a time, and I'm not looking back saying, you know, in the old days, today, where we had an audience that had been trained 
and learned about the great works of the theater and could appreciate what great theater is. I worry, worry all the time about the dumbing down of our audiences, the lack of education in, in schools about what great art is, all art is, not only theater. Um, they don't know what the great shows were, what the great, I mean, th there's no follow through. And the, the everything from despicable way people dress when they go to the theater, the idea that you can sit next to someone who has flippy flops, it has, you know, flops on um, a, 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 not even a t-shirt, you know, uh, what is those underwear shirts that have, you know, straps and, and sh Bermuda shorts and is and is drinking and eating next to you. The idea that that's permitted and that's what we're having in the theater now is a, is an abomination. Theater is an event. It's a communal event. It's a it's something that you can only do the live experience. It's not sitting home looking at a screen and having Cheetos. It's sitting in a theater where where you have a communal event with people where you share something wonderful off stage uh, on stage that's live that's throwing that you have to have and it's respect for the uh, actors. Can you imagine what it's like? And I know actors have told me this when they look out in that audience and they see what is basically a baseball field, a baseball bleachers. It's, it's degrading. And, I, I'm, and that's just appearances, I understand. But it's more than appearances because some of these people have no sense of theater. And it goes so deeply into it because I, when I saw Al Pacino, I'll never forget, in, in uh, Merchant of Venice, and I sat in front of a, a bunch of young women who went to see it, and clearly they only were there because of Al Pacino. But that's so sad. That we don't have an educated, knowledgeable audience. I mean, when we had TDF, I, I did with Wendy Wasserstein this this program where we every year we bring in a lot of kids, and we have mentors, uh, actors and directors, and we take them to the theater. And these are kids that are are you know really all come from the inner city. They've never been to the theater, and I really felt that we needed to expose these kids to something more than, than what they, they're being exposed to now. So it starts from the ground up. Our schools don't do it. We, have a, um, we haven't had a president really since Kennedy who really cares about the theater. We have a mayor who doesn't even know where the theaters are. It's not on anybody's list. Of, of what's important. And I, I, I may be talking totally right, but you said to me, what's my wish? My wish is that we would, we could start now and maybe 20 years from now, we'll, we'll have people who have appreciation for how important the theater is and how much a part of their lives it could be as opposed to just another event. It really should be something that's much more special in people's lives. And they should know more about the history of what we did in this country. I mean, musical theater, for example, as opposed to theater generally, that was our art form. We created it, you know, and how many people, how many young people understand all the different kinds of musical theater that you could be exposed to? I mean, uh, one of the great things about um, Hamilton is that it, it exposes people to a, a different way of looking at musical theater, uh, and and more things like that would be, be great. But, um, that to me is a great loss, and it's been during my lifetime. The difference between audiences and their what, what what way they react and the way they understood and 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 appreciated theater has 
been lost. I mean, and now we, we've dumbed it down, and the kind of material we put on the stage hasn't helped to a large extent. So that that's another story. That's my wish. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a great one, and spoken by a true lover of the theater, obviously. John, thank you so much for having me here and uh, being a guest on the podcast. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We've got some very cool guests coming up. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out my board game at BeABroadwayStar.com. Makes a fantastic Broadway gift for the theater lover in your life. Check it out. BeABroadwayStar.com. See you next week. I'm gonna be a producer. Look out, Broadway. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.